we have another announcement to do at the very end of the service, so I'll get to that too. We have a lot of things going on. The summer's beginning, and we got kids graduating, becoming older. Yeah, I'll say more about that, but uh, that's right. I'm not going to embarrass you guys now much. I won't make you stand up or anything. Yeah, we, yeah, you know what? Let's have you guys stand up. We've got two new freshmen in high school. Go ahead, stand up. Lena, Michael, stand up. That's right. They're now freshmen. Hey, you can sit down. And we have two new seniors in high school. Stand up. You got to stand up, Jake. Jake's already standing. He's a senior in high school. Well, and Onian, too. That's right. I'm so old, and, and Sierra's not here, but she's now, she just graduated from high school a few days ago, so Sierra, is she, is she working right now or something? Yeah, yeah she's, ah. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, we have the youth group uh, summer kickoff tonight, so it's fun to see these guys here, and uh, we have another special guest with us who's up from San Diego, he's in uh, training, so Nate's made it through some pretty intense stuff, Nate's back, yay! Uh, that will just keep things moving here. Let's pray and we'll get into the word. There's a lot of things going on, but that's, that's good. God, we love you. We thank you for uh, your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you um, for the things in life where we get to celebrate, things like graduations and, and next steps in life. And, and uh, God, all through this, through this we, we're, we're reminded that your kingdom keeps moving forward. And and you, you can't be stopped. And, and Lord, we, we realize that we, the Bridge Church Moore Park and the other churches in this area, we play a vital role in the spread of your kingdom in this area. So the, the, the gospel spread, the, the kingdom advancing, that's not just theory out there. It's here too. We, are, we play a, a very important role as we, uh, as we live together as your community Sons and daughters of the King, Lord, living together, uh, growing in unity, growing in, in, in Christ-likeness, making our, all of our mistakes and yet taking steps forward and back, and Lord, just your patience with us. God, as we change and grow, as we are transformed, and, and as we are tr- uh, become a more of a transformed community who live together over the long term, Lord, that, that's different in this world where people choose to be around each other and love each other over the long haul. And so, God, I pray that that would be true about this body, Lord, that we would be a a light in this community, a a city on a hill, a a light that that just points people like a, a lighthouse in the storm that points people to the danger of sin and the path they're on, but pointing them to safe harbor in you, Lord Jesus for salvation, for hope, for forgiveness, and eternal life. Lord, as we look at your word now, God, help us to be reminded of the, of the part we play and how we are supposed to live together as your community. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we are uh, in Matthew 18, and uh, Sam's not here. Uh, he's, on, he's on a cruise with his wife in the Fords right now on the way to Alaska, and having a great time, but I heard, first thing that I, that I heard when I got home, Taylor walks in, she, because we got home right when church was done, so we pulled in, and a few minutes later, Taylor walks, she goes, oh my goodness, Sam did such a good job, <laughs> so that's, that's just so exciting to hear that God, you know, how we have faithful 
men and women here who love God and his word and to know that the, the word is proclaimed and God is glorified, and that's awesome. But we are in Matthew 18, and we're just looking at the next passage down. And this, again, the context of chapters 18 through 20 is about Jesus is, is unravel, or not unva- unveiling to the disciples the kind of community his church is supposed to be. What sons and daughters of the king, how they are to live together, what kind of church they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to take care of each other. Because he is about to leave them within a month, maybe two. This may be only weeks away from him being, he's going to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem. So he's giving final teachings, and this is one of the big ones. And how does this community live in a world that's opposing them? But how do, you, how do they live with each other? What kind of community is it supposed to look like? And it's all kicked off in chapter 17. We have, them, we have the disciples wanting to know who is the greatest in the kingdom. These guys, they're just, remember, I love them because they're just like us. They make lots of mistakes. They say the wrong thing. They do the wrong thing. They don't show faith like they're supposed to. But isn't that like us? All right? So we see Jesus and his patience, and he instructs them, and we're supposed to be hearing this instruction too. And he's saying his number one example of what it's like to be a a true follower in his kingdom, a true follower who lives with others, is what is the example he uses, the number one example in this passage? Childlike. Why did he put a child in front of them? We talked about that a couple weeks ago, and Sam expanded on it more. But why a child? Think that through. I want feedback now. Yeah, humility and simple faith. And now I'm going to add one more thing to it, because here's the deal. As we start moving forward in the passage, he's, he's appealing to the people of the church, well, to these disciples, but by extension, us saying, look, you need to have this kind of attitude, but... Notice the kind of, see, the child that he put in front of them probably was about maybe three years old, two to four, right in there. It was a young child. And, and so in the passage Sam started looking at last week and the one we're looking at today, we're supposed to be keeping in mind that we're supposed to be as humble followers of Jesus. We're supposed to be caring for other believers in the body like they are our own children. See, that's why he stays with this this picture of youngsters in the faith, even biological youngsters. Think about it. If you've ever had children, have you ever had the situation where maybe you're out or you're at somebody else's house, having a barbecue at the house, and your, your child is maybe one and a half, two years old, and all of a sudden you can't find them? And you're in a, in a, a neighborhood where there's a lot of open space and some steep mountains. Not mountains, but hills, but real, with some ravines. And all of a sudden, you look and there's your older daughter, who's maybe four or five at the time, and you can't find your son. What would you do? Well, exactly what we did. We started, I ran outside and I'm running up and down the neighborhoods yelling out Jake's name and... We're, we're just people, someone else hopped into cars, driving up and down, and we're looking, and we're just freaking out. Turns out he was up in the attic playing with trains. But we didn't know that. So I get a call. I'm, I'm like a half a mile away, just yelling. I'm like freaking out. But that care, that desperation, 
It's because I love my child. But you guys, read that now into this passage. As I read it, that's the care we're supposed to have, not only for the youngsters back there in Sunday school, because that's vitally important, but it's also for youngsters in the faith. Do you guys get that? It's, this is not written to pastors. This is written to a community that lives as sons and daughters of the king, his family, the care we need to have for each other to protect, to pursue, to nurture, to help them grow. That's what we all have to have, especially for those younger in the faith, okay? So I want to bring that emote you know, that emotive, that emotion into this because that's exactly why he uses this. It's not just, hey, be childlike. If you notice, he also says, look, hey, woe to you if you cause one of them to stumble. So now he's pushing back and saying to you who are in the community, if you cause a youngster in the faith, he's starting to pursue, hey, you've got a responsibility. But the responsibility we're supposed to feel is not just somebody who's a client or maybe might be in a classroom. This is your own child. That's the kind of care you need to be taking on and that feel the weight of that responsibility, okay? So let's, we'll start, let me read the passage and then we'll start walking through my notes here. <laughs> so we're, we're up now in verse 15. And in verse 12, he says, hey, if, you know, if there's a you know, sheep that's straying, you go and find them, that idea of searching after them. But now we're moving into a different, little bit different situation, but it's still the same picture. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Do you, you recognize that last verse? It's used usually for prayer meetings. It's not for a prayer meeting. It's actually for a situation that we're going to talk about today called church discipline and restoration, okay? We're actually spending two weeks. Today, we're going to talk about why this is here and some of the things, the prerequisites to this whole process, but then next week, we'll walk through the process because this is so, such a key passage. Um, matter of fact, in the, you know, when Jesus, Jesus used the word church, ecclesia, only twice in the Gospels. One we've already seen in Matthew 16, and what was that? Matthew 16, why, what did he use church? What was the context there? Okay, Peter, yeah, Peter's, Peter's statement about who Jesus was. He says, who do you say that I am? The world says this, but what, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, P, and Jesus says, exactly, Peter. That, that confession is what I'm building my, I will build my church on. And the gates of hell won't prevail against my church. I'm building it, but that's the confession. It's all about Jesus and who He is and what He's done. The Christ, the Messiah, the sent one, the Son of the living God. He's God Himself. That's the confession of the church. The second time He says church is this passage. 
And he's talking about what a true church would do would be following this process in helping those, those sheep who are straying, who are stumbling and stuck in their sin. This is how you get them to come back and be restored to the family of God, restored to God and walking in righteousness. This is the process. Sounds simple, sounds simplistic. As we walk through it, you'll see it's not. It's hard, but doing the right thing is never easy. And it goes against our culture. Our cultures, you know, especially in the church, is, oh, don't ruffle any feathers. You want to ooh, be careful. You don't say anything. And woohoo, that's so... No, this is, we have to follow Jesus', Jesus direction in this. Okay, but we're going to walk through it because there's a lot of things that come into play here to keep in mind. Matter of fact, uh, one of this, this would be what many call one of the marks of the true church. If you look at, uh, for one of, instance, one of the big confessions of the faith from past generations is called the Belgic Confession. It devotes a whole chapter to it, the marks of a true church. It says this, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks, a church that engages in the pure preaching of the gospel, right? preach the word and preach the gospel as it is delivered about Jesus Christ. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. This is more reformed. We call them the ordinances. And there's two ordinances the church is commanded to do, baptism and communion. So first of all, it's preach the word. Second one is do the ordinances, baptism, communion, which we do. And then here's the third one. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, this kind of church governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, these three listed, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. Al Mohler, one of my heroes in the faith right now, one a current preacher, Al Mohler calls church discipline the missing mark of the true church because most churches do not follow what we are going to outline for you because it's hard. In a, in, a, in a culture where everyone gets sued for anything, uh, this is a hard thing to follow through with. And we'll talk about that as we, get, as we walk through it. But I, I want us to know that this is vital. This, this is one of the marks of the true church. Again, when Jesus mentions a word twice, we got, we got the confession down, but if we don't follow what He says on how to restore people to the church, to go after them, to pursue them, to call them back to God, if we don't follow His process there, we are unfaithful to Him and His word. That's why this is so important, okay? If you may have never heard about church discipline before, that's good. That's okay. So let's walk through it and learn what it is. But we're going to take, again, two weeks to bring in the, all the components to understand why we uh, want to understand this well. So that's the first part. But again, too, I want to set the, remind us of the context is that the context is that Jesus has said the greatness of the kingdom or of those in his kingdom would that be that they would be childlike. And he's emphasizing their humility, that's what I talked about two weeks ago, the humility necessary of the true sons of the kingdom. And again, the humility here is the childlike trust in, hope in, resting in the provision of the father. A child trusts the parents that they will take care of him. 
That's the kind of thing that, you know, that Jesus is highlighting. This child that he was putting in front of the disciples was a child that trusted his parents and wasn't jockeying for position, climbing the ladder, backbiting so they can make themselves look good and others look bad. He says that's the kind of attitude, this humble attitude, this trust in God and His direction. And, and he mentioned it was a humility that was seen in repentance. You have to repent of your sin, repent and say, I'm not God, you are, I, to get into the kingdom, Right? Then there's a humility seen as, as we walk through. Humility is seen as you follow, joyfully following your God, going where He wants to go, living the way He wants us to live, prioritizing what He wants us to prioritize. His priority for us is not what we would prioritize. Me, I want what makes me feel good, but that's not a good priority to have. It'll only destroy me in the end. As a a humble follower of the Lord, I need to say, what does Jesus lay out as the true marks of a disciple? One of them was like, uh, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. Oh, I don't like that. But if I'm humble and I recognize who He is and who I am, then I'm like, okay, you know, I need to do that. need to follow Him. Humility is not just an attitude either that just says, oh, woe is me, I'm not as good as anyone else. That's not what humility is. Humility is is rightfully recognizing who I am before God, you know, but then it's also seeing others as more important as myself. Where do I get that phrase from? Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Considering others as better than myself, looking for their interests as well as mine. But see, humility doesn't just have an attitude, it has action. Because here's the deal, Philippians 2 is one of the greatest chapters on what humility is and does. As you look at what humility, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, you know, looking, I'll just read it to you, here it is, I have it in front of me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count, consider others more significant than yourself. That's, that's kind of the, the, the key verse for that chapter. And then it gives us four examples of what humility does. Humility becomes action. We have in verses 5 through 11 the humble serving example of Jesus himself. Right in the middle, verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humility took him to go sacrifice. It turned into action. We have the humble serving example of Paul himself in verses 16 and 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. If my life means that I've got to be a sacrifice and suffer, so be it. If that means more become Christians and more of you grow. That's what he said. His humility meant he was willing to to serve and sacrifice for others. We have Timothy's example in verses 19 through 24. Verse 20 through 22, we see Paul talking about him saying, For I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know that Timothy has proven himself, he has proven worth. How as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. He served me in the gospel advance. Timothy's humility led to sacrificial service. And then the last guy is Epaphroditus, who had come from their church. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, 
risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You all couldn't come help me, but you sent him, and he came, and he fulfilled what you wanted to do, and he almost died doing it, but he did it because he's humble. You guys see that? Remember, that's the attitude. There's, that's so important for us to remember is that Jesus has given us the example, and Jesus is telling these disciples standing in front of him, saying, look, your community, my community, that the one, the one you disciples are going to set up, if it's that kind, if you bring that attitude of jockeying for position, that's going to destroy the community. The kind of attitude you have is just like this child, that humble trust in the Father. And you're supposed to display that. But humility is not just an attitude, it turns into action. What kind of action? Serving others. And that's what he starts laying out in verses 5, 6, 7, and on. We see that humble people give of themselves their time, their energy, their resources, their emotions, their heart, they serve their guts out. That's what humble servants do. Not just, oh, I've done my duty. They serve their guts out. Humble followers of Jesus Christ have extreme care and concern for those younger. And there's two types of younger. What are they when we look at this passage? Yeah, so younger biologically, like children. We have got such an important responsibility. We've been entrusted with their lives. Parents, absolutely. But here, by extension, in this church family, we've got to care for our children. One of the most key positions in this church is not mine. It is those working in that Sunday school every week. Matter of fact, if, if the church were to run out you know, of resources and time, the one thing that should not if the church is going to stay together and keep ministering, it's always got to be take care of the children. Older believers, eh, you might know enough to get by and all that, but you've got to take care of the children. And that does include the second area is those who are, bio, who are you know, growing in the faith, who are young in the faith itself. Some of you might be Christians for 20 years, but you might still be an immature Christian. It's not how long you've been a Christian, it's, but it's how mature you are. And how do you measure maturity as a Christian? Are there any measures? Okay, I hear... What? Okay, what are the fruits evident in your life? What else? Any other markers? Yeah, the real bottom line is obedience. But yeah, fruits of the Spirit, we have someone... Yeah, yeah, it's actually, yeah, proclaiming, doing the very core thing. Here's the deal, I heard this once. There are certain things that we will do better in heaven... Worship, praise, fellowship. But here's one thing we can never do better in heaven. You know what it is? Evangelism of the lost. That's why Jesus left us here. If he wanted best praise, well, just bring us to heaven or, or fellowship or whatever. All that will be better in heaven, but evangelism won't. Does that make sense? So yeah, that's absolutely right. But those are markers, and, and you need to evaluate, evaluate yourself. But the church has got absolute total responsibility to take care of, yes, younger children biologically, but also those younger in the faith. When a person becomes a believer, we've got to, boom, get all around them, get them in a, a place of connection and then ongoing meeting to ask questions and figure things out. Matter of fact, that's why I'm doing a class here uh, starting in two Wednesdays for the rest of the summer, uh, just called you know, basics or a Christian basic training, kind of playing it off of Nate being in the military but it's just the basics of the faith. It'll be a refresher course for those of you older, 
but it also will become material for you to disciple others. Because remember, I'm not the main discipler here. I'm just the guy who talks all the time. We all are supposed to be making disciples. And if you're younger in the faith or you like, you know, I don't know some of this stuff about the sovereignty of God or, you know, why is Jesus the only way? Some of these certain things that you'd like more training, come to the class. All right? So it'll be coming up here. But that's, we've got to take care of those younger. But humble people have an attitude like, I am not better than them. And I've got to say, I want to go help them because it's so important that I do. A humble person feels that pressure, not pressure, but that responsibility because you love them so much. You've got the love that God has for them. Humble people, truly who are great in the kingdom, go out of their way to welcome and envelop them in the family of God. And that's really, it's called discipleship. That's what discipleship is. Humble people don't pass off the responsibility for the care and protection of these younger sheep because they're too important. Humble people have a heart that recognizes their own sin and recognizes the danger if you harbor sin and how it can so quickly destroy you. So therefore, that that understanding motivates you to help younger believers not get stuck there. Woe to you who bring temptations. (laughs) It's better, what would be better for you to do? According to Matthew 18? Well, that's if you do bring temptations, it's better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and tossed into the sea. That was brutal. But he says, look, if you have, you know, if you might be bringing temptations, what should you do to those causes of temptations? Better just cut them off, pluck them out, right? That's how serious we need to think of that because if we are harboring sin in our own lives, we might cause younger Christians to stumble. Right? So we got to face our own sin. But then if we see younger Christians stuck there, what are we supposed to do for them? <laughs> Cut their arms off. <laughs> help them not get to that point. But yeah, we want to help them. That's what humble people do. We don't point fingers and say, I'm better than them. Look at them. No, we point fingers saying, oh my goodness, let's go help. It's not pointing, it's reaching. We are concerned for purity in the body because we hear Christ's call on his church to be pure. We're concerned for protection of younger believers because we feel the weight of responsibility. And because we know that temptations are going to come, both in our life but especially with younger believers, we know that they will fall, right? How many of you have ever fallen as a Christian and stumbled and got stuck in bad sin? Yes, So this passage is one of those that say, look, if someone is stuck, pursue them. Purity in the body, protecting younger believers, but when they get stuck and they're straying and they're snared in sin, pursue them. That's what this passage is about. Pursue them. Jesus calls his sons and daughters to actively care from humble hearts that care deeply for sinning family members to actively care about sin and those ensnared and stuck and then go get them. And by the way, chasing straying sheep, that is a pastor's job too. Please hear that. I'm not throwing the responsibility on you, but it's also your responsibility. There's things I don't hear about in this church. I can't. I'm not not God. But if you know of something and you wonder what to do, let this passage inform you a little bit. And if you want more advice, don't hesitate to ask But you need to know, we all bear responsibility to pursue straying sheep. Do we get that? 
That's, that's so important for us to understand because truly humble people will care enough not just to sit here on a Sunday, mark off your, I've done my religious thing for the week, but say, no, this is my family and God calls me to pursue. So let's look at the heart that you need to bring to this process. Next week is about the process. This is about the prerequisites, the heart that you have to bring to it. Because when we examine this process, we can often be accused of going on witch hunts. And that happens in churches. And usually it's led by those who are more legalistic. That's why we have to focus on this first, all right? There is some validity if the following two things happen. If we don't follow exactly the process that Jesus outlines, and two, if we don't bring the right kind of heart and attitude to this, okay? So here's some, some absolute necessity. These things need to be part of the picture. First of all, is there a log in your own eye? Right? Before you go after somebody else, you're always supposed to ask, is there something in my life that I'm, that's getting in my way that Jesus would say, hey, Chris, you're being a hypocrite. And when he's talking about, he's saying, well, right away we say, well, I'm a sinner. I sin all the time. The point in this one, when Jesus was bringing that up, is one, you never go in an attitude of self-righteousness. But the other thing is, is there unrepentant, habitual sin in your life that you're not even struggling against, you're just stuck in it and, you don't, and you're not repenting of it. He says, if that's the case, don't go after them. It's the first thing. But if there's not, that's a good first check. It's, it's a humble person will do this first. First, I'm going to look inside. A second thing from Galatians 6, 1 through 2 is, how is your walk? It should be done in a spirit of gentleness. How is your heart towards that person? Do you recognize them as a brother or sister? or as an inferior. Check your heart. And this comes from Galatians 6, 1-2. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught, ensnared, stuck in any transgression, they're sinning and sinning. This one specific, you know, in a habitual area. You who are spiritual, meaning mature, growing, not perfect, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Again, that word restore means to help somebody fix nets. That takes time, takes, you know, detail. But it's also used, a word used of mending broken bones. person's got a broken bone. Restoring means to put it in the right place. And then what? It takes about six weeks to, right, Rodney, broken ribs. It's going to take a while for your ribs to heal up. So it's a process of time. That's what he's saying here. Spirit of gentleness, help restore them. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The whole point of what we're going to talk about, the process is to restore. It's reconciliation. It's not about punitive damages. It's not about punishment. It's about restoring them to life, to forgiveness, to hope. Sin always destroys so going to them and confronting them in their sin is always to give them hope and help to restore, to get away from that path of destruction. And then Hebrews 12, 11 tells us, remember that this is a sorrowful event. It's not a happy thing for them to go through. When you look at Hebrews 12, uh, verses, I think it's 7 through 11 overall, it says that God disciplines His children, and it's, it's painful for a moment but it brings about righteousness in the end. It's not easy for them to go through, nor is it easy for you to do, is it? 
How many of you like confronting someone stuck in their sin? You do? Okay. <laughs> Say, wow, you're taking, I'm giving you all my cases. No, no one likes to. It's uncomfortable, right? We don't want to do this. Ah. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That word trained is gum, gumnadzo, with the word, the, picture, the word we get gymnasium from. So, so this process is good and helpful to get them trained back in righteousness. Matthew 18 tells us, what we looked at last week, 12 and 15, it takes great effort. Pursuing sheep that are straying means they're not nearby spiritually. You have to go find them, go after them. That takes time, that takes effort. And if you're like me, I hate doing this stuff. I really do. I, you guys know my personal, I'm like, hey, yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I'm having fun and joking around, but, it, but this is serious stuff, and it's, I don't like doing it, but I know that God calls us to, and to see the fruit that comes from, from this, whether it's quickly or longer term, praise God for it. Helps me grow up, that's for sure. It takes great effort, but it's always done for the benefit of the erring believer and the church at large. I'll just leave, keep moving through here. E, it's based on a, when you confront somebody, it's based on a continuing pattern of sin. Not your opinion about what they're doing, nor is it like a single event. Oh, I heard you cuss. Church discipline. No, it's talking about somebody who's been stuck in a sin that that's, they're, they're stuck in that particular sin. How many of you are good at one particular sin? That's your good, Yeah. Well, I've got, yeah, I've got four to five to 20. Yeah, but no, I mean, time one that, you know what, this is an area that keep, I think I'm over it, then it pops its head up again. Any of you like that? No? Okay. Thank you. Some of you are on the same page as me. Thank you. In Galatians 6.1 is such a great one. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, that word is actually the picture of a, of a rat, like a rabbit trap that snaps shut. And you're the animal that's stuck. That's what the sin has done to you. You're enslaved by that sin, ensnared. It's, a, it's in a rut of habitual sinning. Now let's keep moving here. And again, another thing to bring to the table, it's, remember, it's to bring hope. It's to bring hope through the discipline. Church discipline, church restoration, this actually brings hope. It's to bring them hope. What is it to bring them? Okay. Why do, I, why do I say that? Because God has always exercised discipline on His children, not punishment. Who gets punishment? Those not His children. They get His wrath. Children get His discipline. Why? Because it's a sign of true love. When, when Jake was younger and would, would occasionally want to run out in the street to get the ball... Did I need to get him out of that rut? Because I hated him? No, because I loved him, Jake. And, yeah. and same with your children, you do that. Why do you correct? Because you love them. You don't want them to get ensnared in bad habits or sinful things because it will destroy them, hurt them. And that's what God does when He disciplines. It's to bring hope again, to bring life we play a role in helping each other stay in the faith, to stay in the fight. Do you know that? 
It says in Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast together the common confession of the faith. We help each other stand strong. There's too many pictures in the New Testament for me to go through the entire list. We play a role in each other in our persevering in the faith. God has sovereignly designed the church to be a place where we stand together, we fall down and someone picks us up, they fall down, we pick them up, and we stand together, we walk forward together. It's a journey together. That's why if you haven't been to church a while, you might get a call from me, not to guilt you into anything, but to say, we need you in our body. You need us, we need you, because we all help each other stand strong in the faith. Because we all will need each other's help. And again, this whole process, part of the heart that we bring to this, it's not punitive. It's not to self-righteously condemn somebody, but it's to say, you're stuck in sin. Here's what Jesus says about the sin. Here it is. Let's get you back on track. Because what you're doing is going to destroy you and destroy others around you somehow, way. because that's what sin does. You guys get that? All right. So I'm way behind in my notes, so I will do the rest next week or else I'll take another 20 minutes. So we'll stop here. But again, this is the heart we bring to this process. And next week as we walk through each, each section of the next few verses, we will walk through what that process looks like. Because we've done it in the church and you may not have known about it because we didn't have to go all the way through. But I've had to go all the way through at previous churches. And it's Oh, you quake in your boots because when, you, when I was doing this with Sam and I did this one time, actually a couple times, as you're walking through this, you realize, wait, I'm doing something Jesus commands us to do, and we're doing a process that actually has huge spiritual ramifications if you go all the way through to the end of the process, where it says, let him, let him be to you as a tax gatherer and a Gentile. What is he saying to Jews, the Jewish disciples listening to him, saying you call them non-Christians. And God, because what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you loose on he's saying using a Jewish formula, he's saying if you declare them as a church elder board, the leaders of the church after going through the whole process, we'll talk about that next week, you, and it is, if they're not repenting, they're staying in their sin, you can declare them, make a spiritual declaration that is actually what heaven actually sees them as, and that's as unsaved. You guys get that? Wow. Like I've reached out to a person who went through church discipline, and they're, they're kind of starting to go to other churches, and I, and I let them know. I said, look, according to what happened here, unless you've repented, but you need to let us know and show us by what you're, you know, because we gave them specific steps to take because they were stuck in sin, said, unless that hasn't changed, you are still declared an unbeliever. And even if you go to that other church, it won't matter. Not because we're smarter, better, because we're so powerful, but we went through the process Jesus said to go through with you. We did it over a year plus, time after time. We, we, took, like, we took each step and we did it like three or four times at each step because we wanted to be so merciful and compassionate and clear. But when we made that declaration about that person, they have to understand. Again, everything I'm talking about here, how foreign is this to American culture? Totally. It's way foreign. Like, how dare you? Like, I don't dare because I think I can. I do because Jesus says I'm supposed to. 
And we do it because we're supposed to. And that's why it's one of the true marks that's missing from the church in general. Okay? So that's the part. That's why I'm taking time in this passage because you need to understand it. Because if we go through it, you play a role in their restoration. You'll see a huge role before they get to the very final end of the process is the the role that the entire church can play. Okay? I know it sounds like, okay, you're hitting this so hard, but this is so important we understand this. Because again, Jesus said church twice. We've already talked about once, and we all like that we teach about the gospel of salvation, but it's more than that. It's also how do we live in community, okay? You guys all right? So here's the challenge for us. Let me go through the so what's just real quickly, and we'll do our last song. Go back a few slides, sorry. Back arrow. <laughs> Poor Ian. Ian's all ready for the next thing here. So uh, one, oh yeah, so here we go. So church, first of all, is God's plan A for reaching the world. It's not Campus Crusade. Those are great. These outside ministries are great. But his church, local church, is God's plan A for reaching the world. He cares for the health of his church in a right confession and a true community. Okay? A right confession is the truth about Jesus and his gospel. We've talked about that. But true community is built on humility, like Jesus. A true community is a community of humble sons and daughters who truly care for each other and bear responsibility to disciple, to protect, and pursue those straying and stuck in sin. Next one. The church has a process for rescuing and restoring people to the body. And this process calls for hearts committed to loving God and others, sacrificially loving them by pursuing them out of humble hearts that desire to serve and rescue. The process is for their rescue and restoration. This process is important to the health of the body and the reputation of Christ. His reputation's at stake. If they know there's a bunch of people who are just sinning like the rest of the world, oh, that church... That church full of sinners who aren't repenting, what does that say about Jesus who commands us to obey him and repent, right? His reputation. So the challenge is, do we truly care for others in our church to this degree? You have to answer that for yourself, right? And then do we care for the reputation of Christ to carry out this process in a culture of only make me feel warm and fuzzy, right? Because it's uncomfortable. But who's our king? Our culture? our feelings, or what Jesus says, right? That's a challenge, isn't it? Hard, but I'm confident that our church has that commitment. And we will make mistakes. (laughs) How do I know? Because I'm part of the leadership. And I don't do that, you know, with joy at all, but I I want you to know that we're going to do our best to, to keep doing what God wants us to do. Let me pray, and then we'll have our last song. God, thank you for your word. Most of all, God, I pray that we would have hearts that are humble, that want to please you, that want to help others tremendously, that are, are honest about our own fails, failings and sins and mistakes. But God, we want to honor you so much. God, I pray that we would be a church more and more bent, fiercely committed to doing what you tell us to do, to be that kind of church where people find hope and help, even when it hurts. We love you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for 2,000 plus years in building your church. And may we be a part of that expanding of your kingdom for your glory and for our good. So we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.